preaching for you and reading for you out of Hebrews chapter 8, starting with verse 7 and going to the end of the chapter in verse 13. Hear now the word of God. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all Know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Faith comes from hearing. In hearing the words of Christ, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, this particular passage is one that we cling tightly to, especially this last part when we are reminded not only in this month's assurance of grace, but often in our lives we are reminded that you have promised that you will be merciful toward our iniquities And remember our sins no more. Father, help us to remember the supremacy of Jesus Christ that made that so. Help us to remember his role as the high priest king that made this so. Help us to remember the journey of your people, of what you gave us to guide us by your hand to this revelation of the fulfillment of the promise that you have made from the beginning that you will redeem and have a people for yourself. Father, encourage us. Encourage us to respond faithfully to your covenant. And encourage us to be able to respond with hope to the ratification of your promises in Jesus Christ. Help us with this this day in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we had a one-point sermon that was kind of a two-point inside of a one-point sermon, and it was a longer sermon than usual. And so I know it could be quite frightening to know that today, to make up for only having one point last week, I'm going to have four points this week. But I think that maybe you'll find that we'll be able to summarize this maybe in a more concise manner than before. 
So I'm going to give you the four points of this particular sermon out of Hebrews chapter 8, 7 through 13. And as one is that the law is ineffective to save. That is something that is very clear in this passage as the writer of the, to the Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah 31. And it's important to remember that he is quoting from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant promise, that ultimately that the law is ineffective to save. Two, the law is a teacher and a guardian. That we see inside of this in Jeremiah 31 that the law has a purpose. Because that's going to be the question that you see here, and you actually see in Galatians 3, which we'll be reading in a few minutes, that as soon as you start talking about how the old covenant, how the way that the Lord was dealing with the people during Moses' time, how that's obsolete and how that's vanishing away, the first question is, well, what was the point of that? Well, the law is a teacher and a guardian. Thirdly, the new covenant... The new covenant that is promised here in Jeremiah 31 and is being highlighted in the book of Hebrews, this new covenant is old promise fulfilled. Now, it's important to think about that and to remember that, that this wasn't a new idea. Even though the word new is there, it is not something that is novel in the mind of God toward the people of God. In fact, it is an old promise that's older than the particular covenant and administration of the covenant that was going on with Moses. It's older than Moses, this old promise that is in the side of the new covenant. And then lastly, the fourth point is to highlight the great commission of the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of times we don't think about the great commission of the Holy Spirit. We think about the great commission of Jesus Christ because he's the one who commanded it. But inside of the great commission and inside of this particular passage, we see the necessity for the great commission to be of the Holy Spirit by the power of Jesus Christ on the cross. But it is ultimately the Holy Spirit that brings about the fruit of the great commission. So again, just going over the four points again, the law is ineffective to save. The law is ineffective to save a sinful and rebellious people who have broken covenant. It's not just that it's ineffective to have that power, but to remember that we are a sinful people and a rebellious people and that the law itself cannot save us who have broken covenant, but that Jesus is effective. Two, the law is a teacher and guardian to lead, but not to deliver, but that Jesus is able to deliver. He is one who is able to rescue us. Because of Jesus' role as the high priest king, he is able to deliver us from our enslavement to sin. The new covenant is the old promise fulfilled because Jesus is the fulfillment. Everything that we see here being highlighted about Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews and how he is supreme over all things is that he is the fulfillment. He is the ratification of the old promise. And in Jesus Christ, it has made a new, the new covenant is Jesus as being the fulfillment and the ratification of the very old promise that Jesus made even to Adam and Eve in the very beginning. And the great commission of the Holy Spirit is the great commission of the Holy Spirit because Jesus says it is. He's the one who gave that command 
And therefore, we can hold on tightly that the power of the Great Commission will be effective because of the Holy Spirit. So in point one, the law is ineffective to save a sinful and rebellious people who has broken covenant. We see this in Hebrews 8, verses 7 through 8. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. I think it's important to look at that word faultless. I think that's a daunting word there is when we start thinking about the law of God. And you would have to think that the Christian, the Jewish Christians that were hearing this particular letter, we know that they one of the issues that they had is that they were holding on to old shadows and they were holding them up too highly. And so, therefore, the writer of the Hebrews was presenting Jesus Christ in such a way to remind them that Jesus Christ is more superior than these things. And so, when he said the word faultless, it might have made their eyes twitch a little bit. Like, faultless? That it had been, if the first covenant had been faultless, are you saying that it means that there is fault? With the law of God? Are you saying that the thing that we have been cherishing and been holding on to that's in the Ark of the Covenant, that there's something wrong with this law? Well, very quickly, in the very next verse, he says, for he finds fault with them, he says. We see that the reason why that the first covenant, that the law cannot be faultless, is because the people have fault in them. He turns the direction, not that there's something wrong with the law, but because the people have sinned, because the people have broken covenant, the fault is with the people, and in the law cannot fix the people. It's not the law's fault that the people have sin. The direction that he is turning this to is that it is the people. So the law is ineffective to save a sinful and rebellious people who have broken covenant. And then he begins, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. This word establish Again, to be cautious, and that we don't have the ability for all of us to go and take a class in Greek and try to understand this thoroughly. And I haven't even done that. I've tried. I didn't do so well in my Greek classes. I didn't do so well in my Hebrew classes. But thankfully, we have a lot of resources today where people can help us through, and, and you can go through and study these particular words. This word establish is ultimately and probably more appropriately um, interpreted as the word ratify, right? So when we hear the word established, we often think that it's a new thing. I was even thinking that outside of the church building that we might want to put some, you know, you go to these church buildings and they have a little little concrete plaque that has dates on it when, when the building was um, first established, right? And or the ministry was first established. And then, then you would see that they have maybe a dedication service when it was remodeled. You kind of see a history. And, but it starts with that this church was established. You come into Mendota, you'll, I think there's a sign that says something about when it was established. A lot of places will have that. Or other church buildings will say established. And you're thinking the beginning. 
But ultimately here, it's not the beginning of a new covenant. It's a ratification of a new covenant. The establishment means that it's secured. In fact, the Greek word means more complete than it means to initiate. We tend to think of initiate because of how we use the word establish when it's ultimately saying ratified. And this is what I was saying in point one, that the law is ineffective to save. But Jesus is effective. And because of his highest priest's role, he is able to establish the fulfillment of the ratification of the completion of the old promise that, was being, that has been given to Israel and the house of Judah. Question for you today. When you're a child, why do you study? Kids? Why, why do you have school going on? Why do you, homeschooling or whatever classes you may take? Why, why do we study? Why is it that synonymous to our childhood that there is studying? Why would we do such a thing? Kids don't tend to like it right off the hand. But why do we do that? Kids, why are you studying? You know, other than the fact that you get threats from your parents. <laughs> Why can't you do that later? Why not do it when, you're, when you retire? Because we may need this stuff in life. Okay, so you need to learn stuff because you may need it for what? For life. It's a pretty simple answer. When you're a child, is it not that you study so that you can learn how to live as an adult? When you grow up, Right? Whenever that happens. Has anybody figured out the age of when you're actually considered to be a grown-up? When you die. When you die and go to heaven. But does a certificate of completion or a diploma, does it give life? Does that make you an adult? Does that completing a particular study, does that institute in you life? No. It's just saying that you've done the work that you've studied it. You may have been asleep through it. You may be good at, you know, taking tests. You know, how many of you are here good at taking tests, but you don't know anything? <laughs> there are some people that are like that. And then there's some in here that are not very good at taking tests, but they may have better retention. Different personalities have different ways of approaching that. But we need to have a teacher. We know that we need to be taught. But it actually is not the very thing that makes us a mature adult. It's not the thing that gives us life. Going through and studying something does not establish in us adult life. It is there for a purpose. We need a guardian. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Braveheart. But I'm petitioning my family to see Braveheart tonight. Um, I haven't seen it in quite a few years. I may have seen it with Knox or maybe Lydia or Abigail. I can't remember. Most of, our, most of my kids have not seen it. It's a little gory of a movie, so be careful. If you're going to jump into it, you might want to do some reviews. But in that particular movie, there is a scene that, and this is going to be a little bit of a spoiler, but it happens in the beginning, that William Wallace's father has just died. And they've had the funeral, and I think he's just out doing some work out in the field or something. And this man rides up on a horse and gets off the horse and introduces himself that he is Argyle Wallace. He is his uncle. He is William Wallace's uncle. 
And you can tell that at that particular point that he has come to be the guardian for William Wallace. And he's having a meal and conversation with William Wallace. And he's explaining to him that he is going to be his guardian. And he asked him, he says, was, did the priest give a proper benediction for your father? And he said, I don't know. It was in Latin. He says, you don't, you don't know Latin? And he said, no. And he said, well, then we'll have to remedy that. And you can see that he's beginning to already see the things that he is going to have to teach inside of this role as guardian. He is going to teach William Wallace Latin so that he could understand the benediction, the good word of the Lord. William Wallace says, but I don't want to go with you. And he says, well, you didn't want your father to die either. So he needed a guardian. It was a necessity for him. He was going to need to have these things. And then as he watches his uncle later on hold a sword, he comes up and he, he asks to hold the sword. And you can say, say, okay, I'll be happy to learn about this. Show me how to use the sword. You can see that on his expression. And his uncle says, first, you must learn to use this before you learn to do this. And you see that he is going to be a guardian to William Wallace and have an impact in his life that will equip him and help him in life. But he knows that he's not ultimately the one giving him life, that William Wallace will be living the life ultimately that God has ordained for him. And so we need, we all need a guardian and a teacher. And we see inside of this particular passage, as I lead into my second point, that the law is a teacher and a guardian to lead. He's not going to be the one to deliver. The lessons learned are not the things that will deliver. Just as William Wallace, it's not his learning, his lessons will not be the thing that will help deliver the people in Scotland to freedom. But it will equip him and it will guide him in that way. It will be Jesus who is able to deliver because Jesus is the promise. The law is ultimately a part of the hand of promise. It is God's way when he reached out, as we see here in verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. We see here in Jeremiah being quoted again in Hebrews that God is presenting himself as one who took Israel by the hand to guide them through the wilderness. He gave them a law because the law was going to be a guardian to them to teach them about a lot of things, about the character of God and about the requirement of mankind. And ultimately to teach about the sinfulness of mankind. To show the contrast between the holiness of God and the unholiness of God's people. And we see here very quickly in that particular passage that they did not continue in that covenant. They broke that covenant. In fact, today, if you would have been paying attention in the Old Testament reading, there was actually the marriage ceremony of that covenant being given. I didn't plan that. And the people said, we will do these things. I do, is what they said. And they did not. They broke that marriage covenant. And it says here that God said, so I showed no concern for them. In some translations, it says that he disregarded them. And considering that this came from Jeremiah 31, we know that in Jeremiah chapter 3, that God said that I gave a decree of divorce. Because they broke the covenant 
God divorced himself, was going to divorce himself from the people. And we see that ultimately, and it is actually a part of God's plan as he actually expands who is going to be his God's, who's going to be God's people. So we see that the law was there for a purpose to show forth the terms of relationship, but it also captivated them, showing them that they will be in sin and showing that it is impossible for them to be able to achieve fulfillment of that particular covenant that was given to Moses in that particular time for a particular purpose as law and teacher. There is no better passage to explain this more elaborately than what we have in this passage other than in Galatians chapter 3. And I'm often sometimes tempted not to. I know whenever I take on big portions of, 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 uh, of Scripture, I have a tendency to lose people, but I'm going to ask you and to beg you to, to follow me here because I'm going to read to you, and I encourage you to turn to Galatians chapter 3 and read with me. This is a very rich passage, and the way that Paul has presented this in his letter to the church in Galatia is very energetic. So it's not a very boring passage, and it's not a hard one to understand. This one is going to be very clear, and so I encourage you to go and read along with me. Because this does such a great job. I thought about summarizing it. I thought about highlighting it and just taking out different passages. I'm like, oh, you just can't do it. It's just, it's just so rich in explaining the very point that's being made here in Jeremiah and being requoted here in Hebrews. So in Galatians chapter 1, and this is Galatians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians! <laughs> Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now highlight that, folks, that the gospel was preached to Abraham. This is before Moses, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that it is Christ Jesus, 
the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And what we see here is that he's narrowing down this promise. This promise was already from the very beginning being narrowed down to an offspring. And what we have here is Paul explaining that this offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Just like I said, so what's the response of that? Why then the law? It was added because of our transgressions until the offspring, Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? This is a very important question for us, especially in this age. Because so many people will, will put the law of God against the grace of God, as if it's some kind of separate thing, as if they are contrary to each other. And a lot of people will say that when if you talk about the law, you're being more like a Pharisee. Well, I would venture to say that there's all kinds of Pharisaism going on in this world today. And a lot of them are the people who are like, it's all about grace. And they don't want to talk about the law. Because what is the number one problem with Pharisees? Y'all can answer that. Where do Pharisees go wrong? Is it because they focus too much on the law? Is that the problem with Pharisees? They're prideful. They're prideful, so they're inconsistent in their hearts concerning their approach to the scriptures and their preaching of the scriptures. They're hypocrites. What else is wrong with the Pharisees? They idolize their tradition more than. They idolize their traditions. So what we start seeing here is when they de- deviate. It's not that it's the law that's the problem. It's their traditions. It's their pride. It's their taking ultimately the law of God out of the context in which it was presented. They want to make the law the thing that is going to save. They're going to make their works of the flesh. That what they are ultimately doing is that they are serving pride. Well, whenever we do anything that we take God's word out of its context and we try to create a religion based upon that, we are basically doing the same thing. We are pridefully twisting the word of God and utilizing our own traditions and our own cultural desires as being our understanding of religion. And the grace-only mindset where it's just like it's all about grace and you can't talk about the law, you can't talk about the Old Testament, you can't talk about that stuff, that's Pharisaism. It's the same thing. It's being prideful to think that you could come up with your own religion apart from the very purposes of what God has given us. And so we have the question here being presented before the Galatians. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. 
For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It had a purpose. It helped imprison. It helped to summarize and help us to understand our sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to us. This is the gospel, folks. The law is necessary for any presentation of the gospel. If anyone tells you that it's all about gospel and they don't want to talk about law and they don't want to talk about sin, it is no longer the gospel. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The book of Hebrews is about promise, the fulfillment of the promise. He is talking about the promise that preceded the law here 430 years before the giving of the law. And so we see that the law has a purpose to point us ultimately back to the promise that we have to go back to the promise when the law is presented to us because the law would crush us. And we see inside of this passage that as he took us by the hand and as he taught us about the need of promise, because we saw there in the wilderness that man cannot keep the law, that they cannot be faithful. They cannot be the faithful bride. That God divorced them. But we see here in this proclamation a reminder that God had always told us that we will be his people. We see in Genesis 17 this proclamation that we will be their God. The new covenant is the old promise fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment, the ratification, the ultimate ratification. And the law is there to call us to repent so that we may be able to understand and to see this need for this fulfilled promise. Verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 8, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It is not contrary. It wouldn't make any sense if the law was contrary to promise. The fulfillment of the promise is that that law will not just be remaining inside of an Ark of the Covenant and constantly reminding us that we cannot keep the law, that God is going to do something miraculous. That through the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, he's going to take that law that is written in stone and put it on hearts that once were stone that he is making into flesh. He's going to put that law that 
highlighting of his character and what is good and what is right, he's going to transform us and he is going to let that dwell inside of us. And he is going to fulfill that promise that he made in Genesis 17. As we see here in verse 10 of Hebrews, I will be their God and they shall be my people. When he said that to Abraham, that was before the law. And then he gave us the law. Ultimately, it was always pointing that he was going to accomplish this by the promise of Jesus Christ. If you want to get rid of the Old Testament, you get rid of the promise. If you get rid of the promise, you get rid of Jesus Christ. You have no idea what you're talking about when you're in the New Testament without the understanding of the fulfillment of that promise that God has always made to his people. Another place where this is highlighted is in John 16, by the very words of Jesus Christ when he was on the earth. If you would turn to John 16, verses 7 through 15. He tells them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Let's stop there. So Jesus is promising. Remember, Jesus is about to do his work on the cross, his ultimate high priestly calling to go to the cross. And he will be raised from the dead. And he tells them, of the promise of the helper, which is the Holy Spirit, which is the ultimate ability of the fulfillment of that promise that the law is going to be in our hearts because the only way that it's going to get in our hearts is through the Holy Spirit, not the law, right? And so he tells them that when the Spirit comes, what is he going to do? He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, because they do not have faith. They must be convicted of their sins. They have to encounter the reality that they are unholy before a holy God. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What we see is that the fulfillment of this passing away of the law being a guardian is that the Spirit is going to take that law and put it in our hearts to convict us, and He will teach us what the law is. We will finally be able to understand it, and we will finally be able to believe it. There will be conviction, and there will be faith. There will be repentance, and there will be faith. There will be the Life of the gospel. In that same movie, Braveheart, and I'll try to be careful here. I don't want to give away too much of a spoiler. There's a conversation going on with a particular character, and he's talking to his father, and he's he's in tremendous distress of his sin, of his rebellion. And he's talking to his father and his father says, all men betray. All men lose heart. Showing forth the reality, yes, all have fallen short. 
But when you are truly convicted of your sin, when the Spirit actually does an action where He teaches us us the law, we will respond like the son responds. He says, I don't want to lose heart. I want to believe. I want to believe. And then He says, I will never fight on the wrong side ever again. That's what conviction of sin does for you. It brings you alive and helps you to understand. And that ultimately can only happen by the Holy Spirit. So we see in our last, my last point, is that the Great Commission is empowered by the authority of Jesus Christ. Being in the heavens with the Father at the right hand in his high priestly role, interceding for us. And a part of his command and his administration of the government, this new government administration, is that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in a new way. Where those tablets that once resided in the tabernacle, inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where it gets to be crazy, folks, is that Jesus is with the Father, interceding for us. So in identity and in proclamation, we are with Jesus, with the Father. But because of the command of Jesus Christ at the Great Commission and before the Great Commission, the promise of the Holy Spirit, that wall that was a symbol of the representation of the presence of God is now inside of his people. So you get what's going on there? Jesus is there. We're with Jesus. But he tells us that he will never leave us because he sends us his spirit. And the law now resides inside of us, not inside of the Ark of the Covenant. That's amazing. Verse 11, it says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's not that the law is being vanished away. It's now that it's residing inside of us. We begin to know the Lord. We can know the Lord because of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't let anyone use this passage to say, well, see, you don't have to have teachers anymore. You don't have to have, you know, you're just going to know it. <laughs> well, that goes against all of the other contexts of the New Testament, namely the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Go, therefore, and make disciples to make students under the guardianship of the Holy Spirit of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so what's the distinction is like, well, didn't they teach them the law in the Old Testament? How is that any different? Well, get this, how he ends the Great Commission. And behold, I am with you always. I am with you always. I am with you always to the end of the age. The law and the promises 
they tell us that we are not our own. We are told that he will be our God and we will be his people. And this is the requirement of those who are his people. We learn that we are not our own and that for us to be able to be accepted by the one who is going to be our God, we know that there has to be some kind of redemption. But because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we're being told not only that we are not our own, but we are not alone. Kids, you remember that? I gave you that this week. I've been using that, you're not your own, I'm not your own, I'm not my own you know, thought for a long time. But in the Great Commission, we are told, but we are not alone. We have the Holy Spirit. And we have the empowerment of being able to actually have faith. And in closing, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talking to the Corinthians says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you. You, yourselves, are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Brothers and sisters, this little church here, you have shown me that you are a letter from Christ. I see inside of you, in your service and in your love for one another and to the community, that the Spirit is active. And you are responding to the commands of God of the commands of Jesus Christ to visit the weak, to proclaim the truth, to proclaim the law, thou shalt not kill, to proclaim the gospel to those to repent and to believe, and to do it with mercy and patience and grace. You are a letter of recommendation, pointing not, as we see here in this word, that we are sufficient in ourselves, to claim anything is coming from us, but that our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. This comes from the action and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which has been brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Brothers and sisters, that if the Spirit is acting in you in that way to bring you to the conviction of sin and to encourage you in faith, to encourage you in hope, and it is pouring out in your service, it will bring more glory than the glory that God shown to the Israelites when he brought the law. That's a promise. Now, it might not look like that. That's why Paul has to tell the church of Galatia. That's why the writer to the Hebrews has to tell the Christian Hebrews. It says to hold fast that what's going on is greater than what happened with Moses. 
So that when you're being reviled or when you are struggling, and remember the passage that we received there in the gospel, that sometimes that struggle comes in your own home. Not just with the things that are without, but within. That you are to hold fast to that confession, to enter into that rest of that accomplishment that Jesus has accomplished and has promised by the power of the Holy Spirit. For if there, were, there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has, become, has come to have no glory at all. Because the glory that surpassed it. It's saying that what was glory, what was wonderful and beautiful there with Moses and what's amazing, that it has been surpassed by the glory of Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of that old promise. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. What it's saying here, brothers and sisters, is that We have a reason to be more bold than Moses who came before the father. Remember that Moses was being bold and saying, you got to keep your word. You got to keep your word. You got to keep your people. You cannot annihilate them. He was petitioning a, (laughs) the vision of what he saw or the, the, the visual of what he saw of the power of God's glory was great, but he had boldness to go before the Father to petition, Lord, save your people. Brothers and sisters, you can have that same boldness because of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because it will affect this region. It will affect your family. It will affect this church. And it will affect this community. God promises that it will Because only through Christ is that veil taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to Jesus, the veil is removed because he is in the presence of the Father. He actually obeyed the law. He took that righteousness and poured it out on us when his blood flowed down from Calvary. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. This can only happen through Christ, who is our high priest. And when one turns to that high priest, the veil is removed and we have freedom in Christ. Let us celebrate the new covenant, the fulfillment of the old promise of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.